It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, snowflakes. No, your ears do not deceive you. This is not Steve Anglesey. This is Eleanor longman Rood. I'm a journalist at The New European and I'll be hosting the podcast this week while our editor takes some well-deserved time off. If you enjoy what we do, there really is no better way to support us than to subscribe. To make that decision easier for you, we have a fantastic offer for podcast listeners. New subscribers can get a year's digital subscription for just £1 a week, or you can purchase a year's subscription to the print and digital package for just £2 a week. You'll have unlimited digital access and our award-winning newspaper will be delivered to your door every week for a year. To take advantage of this exclusive offer and to join our growing community of avid readers, subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash TNE podcast. In this podcast episode, we'll be discussing a fairly sane week in Westminster. We'll hear your thoughts on who could make Brexit work after Keir Starmer finally revealed his Brexit policy on Monday if you can cast your minds back that far. Journalist, global editor of the Bureau of Investigative Journalism and new European columnist, James Ball, will then join us to discuss this week's fallout from Westminster. And then, as always, more putrid pundits and malevolent ministers will be put into the Hall of Shame. Well, thank you for joining us on what can only be described as a surreal week in British politics. For a brief, maddening moment, it seemed like Boris Johnson was going to stick it out but then the inevitable happened. This morning, he offered his resignation. There's still obviously a lot of questions to answer. One being, what on earth are they going to do with that wallpaper now? And two, has anyone checked in on Nadine Dorries? But I do wonder how many will be ready, pots and pans in tow this evening, outside their homes at 8pm, ready to applaud his resignation. It is Thursday, after all. And when this was all unfolding, where was his predecessor? On Tuesday night, Theresa May was living her best life while out at the opera, watching Cavalleria Rusticana, a tale of betrayal and regret. If nothing else, politics has a sense of humour. A week is a long time in politics, or so said Ian Blackford in yesterday's PMQs. This time last week, the allegations against Chris Princher broke in the news. And just over 10 days ago, Boris Johnson was envisioning his third term, which does beg the question, what is it like to live inside Boris Johnson's head? But four days ago on Monday, Keir Starmer unveiled how he would make Brexit work. And in light of this, we did ask podcast listeners what fictional characters could make Brexit work. Ian Murhead says it would be a wizard and require actual magic. Although I'm not sure Gandalf could make this car crash work. Damien Lowe echoes this sentiment and suggests Merlin. Chris says 
No one, because it can't work. The only other answer involves travelling back to 2016 and making sure the referendum goes the other way. To which Michael Prince says, we need Doctor Who. A lot of listeners also jumped on this idea. Among others, John David Greenbaum says Marty McFly would take us all back to June 2016. And Septimus, potentially not their real name, says Captain Hindsight. And Michael Prince also had another suggestion. He said, is Boris Johnson a fictional character? Because no one could have genuinely written the farce this country is in. But to the relief of people like Michael, and I imagine many of our other listeners, he is stepping down as Prime Minister. Now, before James Ball joins the podcast to discuss Boris Johnson's resignation, my brilliant colleague Suna Erdem and Klani Hanaila have put together an exceptional piece of journalism, which is accompanied by a special three-part pop-up podcast series entitled The 27. Here's a trailer. On the night between November 23rd and November 24th, 33 people were trying to stay alive in the English Channel. They were in a tiny inflatable, too many of them, and it was deflating. They called for help over and over again, but nobody came to help them. By morning, they were dead. This was the worst tragedy of its kind, and it took place in one of the world's busiest shipping routes between two of the world's richest countries. In the days that followed, we learnt more about the people who died, men, women, and a young child, but their stories were soon eclipsed. First, there was a political row over who was responsible for the deaths. Then the story faded away, to be overtaken by government scandals and the coronavirus pandemic. The new European has spent a month retracing the journeys of some of those who perished. Where did they come from? Why did they leave? What drew them to Britain? And why did they have to die when the ships that could have saved their lives were so close? In this three-part series, we tell their stories because they deserve to be told. And we ask, what can be done to fix a system that's so inhumane? The whole series of The 27 is now available to stream or to download where you found this episode. And if you want to help us do more work like this, then you could subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Joining me now on the podcast is the journalist, global editor of the Bureau of Investigative Journalism and New European columnist, James Ball. He's written this week in issue 299 of the New European on the Chris Pincher allegations, the government's lack of basic decency and putting this sleazy house in order. Has he now gotten his wish? Welcome to the podcast, James. So good afternoon. Lovely to be here. What a week. I know. I was going to start by saying thank you for joining us on this very quiet week in, um, in Westminster. So, yes, I mean, as, as we record this, it's uh, slightly less than an hour since the PM sort of half resigned while essentially telling all of his MPs that they were idiots for doing it. It was uh, utterly extraordinary. It is. It's been a very surreal week, to say the least. Before we start on the obvious topic, if I could ask you to cast your mind back to Monday, which feels a lot longer than four days ago, which is what we've also spoken about in our issue this week. What did you think of Keir Starmer's sort of Brexit policy speech on Monday? So, I mean, in all honesty, I don't think many people who listen to this podcast or 
sort of, you know, or who reads the New European are going to love what was said there. But I actually sort of think it's about all that you can do if you're Labour now and want to actually win an election and sort of stop this absolute rot. You know, Boris Johnson's successor is not going to have a different Brexit policy than him. The Tory membership and the Tory parliamentary party wouldn't let that happen. And so they'd like nothing more than to repeat the 2019 Save Brexit election. So what Starmer wants to do is neutralise Brexit as an issue. And, you know, I I sort of come from the, the realist thing. You know, Brexit will continue to make the country poorer. It will continue to make us rule takers. It will continue to have all of these issues. But it has, you know, it won't be reversed quickly. Public mood has to change. This sort of has to be a bit of time between these things. And reaccession is a really long process. And, you know, for all that people want to try and say, no, we could rush through it. Actually, we couldn't. We would have to rejoin under very different rules than we left. And so saying that you'll sort of start to soften it and try and make it actually work, but fall short of the customs union, I think is the only option available to him. So, yeah, I think it's one of those where, just as in the 90s, the prospect of leaving the EU was a remote one and sort of people recognised it was distant even as they called for it. I think we have to accept rejoining is probably that kind of 20-year project as well. And I suppose after everything that was going on, it was almost, you know, it was a case of him playing the game and keeping people on side and what he, like you say, his only real logical option left to play, whether people listening really like it or not. Um, Yeah, I mean, a second referendum, I backed a second referendum before we actually left because that could have kept us at the status quo. Sure. A rejoin referendum is a very, very different thing. Mm. Um, and, you know, starts a whole accession process. It would, pro- it would mean joining Schengen. It would mean joining the euro. These are propositions that quite a lot of us might like. But, you know, I just don't think the country's there. And I don't, you know, if that was Labour's offer coming into an election, that would be an absolute gift to the Conservatives. So I think... If, if you want to enter the Conservative government, a Brexit policy like this from Labour is actually part of the price you pay, I think. And you mentioned, you know, so that's not where the country is at the moment. And obviously that was four days ago. We've very much moved on <laughs> since since then, to say the least. Um, and this whole, you know, Keir Starmer's Brexit speech, sort of to, to name it that, on Monday got brought up in PMQs by, by Johnson on Wednesday. What did you think of... Starmer's performance in PMQs I mean I know you know because the women's Euros begins this week to use a football pun it was a bit of an open goal there's sort of you know you've got a lot of ammunition on his side and I did enjoy his sort of lightweight brigade comment and a few others and there's some very sort of poignant tone he opened with reading out the victims comments I thought it was quite good what did what did you make of it? I thought it was one of his best PMQs. I, I mean, it was an extraordinary PMQs all around, just mm. sort of, I've never heard the sort of formulaic. I've had meetings with colleagues uh, from the House and I'm hit, uh, at the start getting a laugh before, and it kind of, I bet you have. You know, it was genuinely strange. You could tell you that you were at the end of something. Mm. Um, in fact, several MPs sort of said, as this is likely to be your last PMQs, why don't you X? Um, but I thought, you know, Tom Hamilton, who used to um, sort of help do PMQ's prep for uh, Ed Miliband, sort of has a, a saying that the weeks where it's an open goal aren't nearly as easy as they look uh, okay. because expectations are so low against the PM. 
and all of the lines of attack have sort of been tried in the media and on Twitter already, it can actually sort of be very underwhelming. People gear themselves up for a real devastating blow and then it doesn't really come. I think Starmer actually landed it this time. You could see he was nervous. Um, for a barrister, he's got weirdly not brilliant delivery. But I thought by actually quoting the victim in the first one, as you flagged, he sort of raised that this was something quite serious and quite gross. Mm. And that the PM had not just appointed him, but that he then allowed his team to lie about it, allowed his team to brief ministers and MPs to defend him falsely about what he'd known and hadn't. I think, honestly, that's he probably lost himself a lot more of his own MPs there because, of course, a lot of their aggravation about Partygate was that he sent the number 10 press office and he sent MPs and ministers out with information that was false. Uh, and then to see the new comms team that had supposedly come to change all of that and turn over a new leaf do exactly the same on an issue that serious, I think people just had had enough. And so I think Starmer hammering that home actually probably moved a few opinions. And I think also, you know, as we've mentioned, sort of opening with those the remarks from the victim set set them out as two very different, you know, they've always been two very different characters in terms of rhetoric and charisma. And, you know, they are quite literally polar opposites, but it set that rhetoric up and then, we had a lot of, as we normally do, a lot of blundering from the other side of the same lines of getting back to working with the country and doing what the people want and this, that and the other. And he kept going back to those same lines. Yes, pivoting from, um, you know, I'm sorry I promoted a serial, you know, an alleged serial sex pest. You know, this is one of these victims uh, looking at the litany of accusations. Sorry I promoted a serial sex pest to a position of authority and then uh, lied about what I knew when, but I made 500,000 new jobs. It is just crass, isn't it? It is. To go from, like you say, sorry, I, you know, for want of a better word, basically did this, you know, promoted a sex pest or whatever, but look at all these jobs. Like it's, there's dead cats go and whatnot. It's really not working anymore (laughs) or it hasn't for a while. But yeah, It was just flailing. I mean, you could just, you know, he's... I, I never know if it's apocryphal or not, but, you know, if you cut the head off a chicken, it runs around for a few minutes, or it can't, sometimes runs around for a few minutes before it realises it's dead. You know, Boris Johnson yesterday felt like that, and I apologise for the grossness of the metaphor. No, it's okay. And I know what you mean. It's It seemed to suddenly hit him that it was unravelling, or at least that was my take from it, where I found it very telling. I feel like we've known this to be his character for a while, but he kept sort of echoing towards the end about my mandate and the mandate that I've been given and my mandate this and my mandate that it was quite telling and I don't know do you think remarks like that sort of sealed his fate to to really confirm and sort of ram it home that this was the sort of man that was leading the party and the country I mean it's sort of the funny thing that the number of egos that are in number 10 at one stage because you can tell Dominic Cummings thinks that those 14 million votes were his but um you know, watching Johnson's resignation speech as well, you know, it felt more like an election victory night speech. Uh, You know, if you'd have been drinking a shot every time he said mandate, you'd have alcohol poisoning. Um, You know, he he sort of didn't thank his MPs or ministers. He sort of rattled off all of his achievements and how stupid they sort of thought he was, all of this kind of, you know, his MPs were for getting rid of him. He's got no ability to sort of, he's got no self-reflection. He's mm. got sort of no introspection. He's got no 
contrition. You know, he just thinks he's great and he won't ever sort of be told otherwise. No. And then you you brought up his his resignation statement that was sort of all we were all waiting for this morning outside of outside of Downing Street. I did find it very hard to watch it and not immediately have my brain thinking back of, you know, Theresa May's one, which was a very different tone. Um, what did you you know, was did he say things in the way he you would have expected him to in this statement? So, um, I mean, he said it as I would expect Boris Johnson to. Yeah. Um, but, you know, these things are usually quite solemn and quite reflective. People have often written them themselves. You know, even if they've had an undignified sort of bit of it, they they, they often sort of try and speak for a nation the last, t- last time. Um, you know, Browns, I can remember, he gave a quite nice remark. You can see quite a lot of his staff liked him. And sort of for the first time ever, you saw his kids as they walked out of Downing Street. Now, maybe Johnson will try one of those as and when they actually turf him out, which, you know, at the time of recording could be anything from, you know, this afternoon to October, Mm. um, which is part of the, you know, he's sort of resigning while trying not to resign and did a cabinet reshuffle beforehand. You know, it's it's, just through the looking glass, but it was just bluster and irritation. You can tell he's furious you know, he can't believe he's been brought down by this. I wonder if he was sort of waiting on the sideline, you know, waiting for people on the sidelines while he was giving, you know, to run out and say, no, you're on candid camera. It's all a joke. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. Go back inside. Yeah. 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 Oh, no, now you've done that speech, we've realised that we actually like you. He's sort of, you know, they, he just doesn't seem to believe that he could actually have been ended. And I think that's why he kept talking about his mandate and his majority. It's like, you know, dude, it's not a presidential system. Parliament can remove you. Yeah, as well, he was sort of talking about the indignity of being removed that way. And it's like, mate, that's how you became PM. I know. Very short memories going on all around, I think. Yeah, it's, it's also, it's not like that was that long ago. Yeah, no. it's, uh, it's not been that long lasting a prime minister. No. And you mentioned this sort of, well, yeah, as we saw, this half resignation, sort of, we know he's going, we don't quite know when. Um, he said that he wants to sort of hang around till... The autumn, but as you say, as the t- at the time of recording, that could be, you know, things keep changing. Say he gets, you know, as he's declared his wish to sort of hang on for the next two, three months. What what is that going to mean for essentially running the country for for governing? What is that going to look like if he stays on until that autumn time? So the convention is that, you know, you're a caretaker. You know, it's a bit like sort of, you know, if you're you're the acting head of a school or something, you're not there to do radical transformation. You're there to sort of keep things running, keep the engine ticking over, deal with any sort of short-term crises and delay any big new decisions. Now, you know, he seems, seems to signal this morning he'd quite like to still try and do the big tax cut or something like that. But a new Conservative leader is not going to want him to have spent all the money. Well, I mean, there is no money for it. It would be an unfunded one. And sort of get the credit. And then they have to come in and work out how to sort of deal with it. And so you've got the sort of slight uh, sort of weirdness where he seems to want to try and do something legacy-wise with his caretaker sort of period. But I don't think he'll have the votes for it. And I don't think, you know, the whips and people will put it through especially because it looks like he's going to be working with a half-empty government. He hasn't filled all of his cabinet vacancies even, I don't think. And he's certainly not filled all of his junior ministerial ones. And so, you know, I think he may end up in a more sort of traditional caretaker role than he thinks. 
I suspect if he tries to be the caretaker, the Tories will accelerate the leadership timetable so that he gets nowhere near, you know, mid-October. And then, you know, as we, you know, we say it's a half resignation, but he has still made that decision. It got to a point this morning where it was inevitable. I think everyone could see it, obviously, whether, you know, whether we think it's stubborn or whether he's completely accepted it or not himself. Were you, when that resignation did come through, were you expecting it? Did it come at the moment you thought it would? Just what were your thoughts when we finally got after all those months, essentially? Well, I think when he hadn't announced any new MPs, any new ministers last night after saying he would, Mm. and after Suella Braverman sort of did what Michael Gove did in private, in public, called mm-hmm. for him to go as Attorney General and wasn't fired by morning. Uh, you started to know something was wrong, but I got up at seven this morning and mm-hmm. there were already two ministerial resignations. You know, by 9am there were eight. And then so someone who'd been in the cabinet just under 36 hours resigned and Deem Zahawi, uh, who'd been Chancellor for 36 hours, publicly called for the PM to go. You know, at that point, you know, there's only so long. You know, it's it's, it's like uh, the coyote from Roadrunner. You know, you can only go so many steps over the cliff before you look down and sort of feel gravity assert itself. Yeah, I think I expected the statement about when it came. It's just there's only so long that you could do that. Yeah, no, like you say, with the Roadrunner, it was definitely, you know, nature was very soon going to run its course, i.e. in that in that instance, you know, gravity will, you know, his crash back down to a very harsh reality. Um, why do you think, you know, as we, as we've, you know, said, and we've spoken about before on this podcast, but this isn't the first, you know, scandal or anything like that to hit Boris Johnson. Obviously we've had Partygate before that we had um, sort of Owen Patterson and Sleaze. Why is, you know, to name two, why has it been this one specifically that led to those, those two resignations on Tuesday night that essentially got the ball rolling to where we've been this morning. I mean, you can you can always sort of draw a line. There was there was always there was a sense of rumbling. Um, you know, there was a sense that he'd got worse, not better after the no confidence vote, which sort of actually happened with Theresa May as well. They sort of think they're safe and then act even more. If, you know, in ways that annoy their party even more. Um, and sort of triggered things. So there was a sense that a new 1922 committee might be appointed and change the rules. So there were rumblings already. And so something was going to set it off. And I think the combination of the Pincher story being genuinely reprehensible Mm -hmm. and also, you know, easy to understand and right in front of the MPs, you know, six or seven MPs were in the room when the two latest incidents happened. Um, you know, I think that coupled by the press, the new press office repeating the sort of lying and making a story much worse and dragging down more people, I think it just finally clicked that he, he wasn't going to change, he wasn't going to get better, his popularity wasn't going to recover, he wasn't going to suddenly become more decent. And so I think that just became the spot where they sort of decided to go, you know what, this is it. To use the you know enough enough was enough as um as it turned out, I have to admit when you know I said the double resi- resignation, but obviously there were two separate ones that came through on Tuesday night of of Rishi Sunak and Sadid Javid. I have to admit when 
when Rishi's, you know, the notification popped up on my phone, I did audibly say a few words that I'm not going to repeat on this podcast. <laughs> but I think that was, you know, the signal to me that things were very much starting to unravel. What were your thoughts on as this all started to kick off on Tuesday night, which again feels um, longer than two days ago? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's sort of given how quickly things started moving, it felt quite slow at them. You know, there was that odd sense Tuesday night, especially, you know, in this good age, like fine milk, there's an indication that Rishi's resignation might actually just be that he's had enough of it all. Mm. Um, and, you know, he's kind of sick of politics. Um, whereas Javits was much more obviously kite flying, you know, a, um, a possible leadership bid. But I think, you know, until... Wednesday morning and where you started seeing a slow trickle become a flood you know I think that that sort of initial one was well he's got two new people in the post could he somehow survive this no one else in the cabinet's followed no one else has you know there was that sort of couple of hours on Tuesday evening where you're like god is he gonna get through this one as well uh and then sort of by about 10 a.m Wednesday morning you sort of like no no, the question is whether he goes this week or next week. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, yeah, well, like we've said, it became very, very much inevitable. Um, I remember reading somewhere that he was going to try and cling on till the 21st and then, you know, get through recess and then hope that people would, you know, magically forget about it and that a summer holiday would be the, the tonic that would solve it all or whatever. But I think it very much, obviously, wasn't the case. Yeah, he never managed to get sort of more than about 10 seconds ahead of events, you know. You never got a sense that he had a plan for the next day, let alone the next week. So no. just such a chaotic No, I, I think chaotic very much sums up yesterday, trying to keep track of what number of resignations we were on. It's sort of, I've heard it referred to on the news this morning, as like sort of cabinet minister bingo, like if you just have it open in front of you and then try and cross off and then who's going back in? No, nope, they're out. Okay, no, nope, never mind. Thought I was on uh. top of it, but no. <laughs> It, it was like a week of news every hour. I mean, you mm. know, I've, it's, the only, I've, it's the only time I've ever seen a sort of select committee, and in this case, liaison committee, which is usually, you know, it's quite important, but it's usually fairly dry. Um, just sort of, uh, you know, it had the resignation ticker, you know, as if it was, you know, just counting up some new thing. It's, I've never seen a, a ministerial resignation uh, live count before. It's... um. Oh, I'm going to be really bad now. And I've forgotten the name of the TV show, but it's like that. I think it's The Office. And it's got the sign saying it's been zero days till our last disaster or something like that. It's <laughs> yes, been zero days yeah. till our last resignation or zero minutes even. Uh, well, there, there was sort of a point where if, if you'd gone 20 minutes without a new resignation, you assumed your internet had broken or something. Yes. And that pretty much sums up the day when you feel like you've missed something. What do you mean no one's resigned in 20 minutes? I must, something must have gone wrong. Um, so, well, it was quite funny. Someone who I, I work with here in the Bureau sent me at, um, sent me at, yeah, 9-11 this morning. Am I going to miss the collapse of government just because I need to get on the Northern Line? And then <laughs> 35 minutes later, turns out, yes. <laughs> it's, you know, just sort of this slightly amazing thing where what was half a joke became the actual reality I know well I've heard that the northern line can be difficult but I've never got on it and then caused the collapse of government but you know (laughs) (laughs) but you know maybe there's still time (laughs) it's uh well this is as well I mean we're in quite strange territory this is the sort of 
for this will be the fourth prime minister sort of from the same government in a row. Um, you know, we've said we've not done that. You know, I don't know about sort of pre twentieth century, but we've certainly never done it this century. Um, you know, and this is the second time that the Conservatives have changed part, uh, leader midterm. You know, it's quite a strange bag at the moment where you've got what it, notionally one party has been in government for 12 years, but we've actually had four different governments, so we will do soon. Uh, it, it's quite a, a strange proposition to voters. So, they, you know, they may find they wish to try out another party soon. I very much imagine, I feel like a lot of people will think the same, that that is probably... The case that a lot of people are ready for a change, but they don't just mean from um from Boris a much a much bigger change. Um, speaking of change, so obviously you know there's a lot of questions going around. You know, one of the questions is sort of runners and riders. Who's who is going to be next? Who is going to be party leader? You've got you know the obvious names, um, Rishi Sunak's names in there, Penny Mordaunt, Tom Tugendhat. Apparently, we can't forget about Liz Truss just yet. Whatever that means yeah. for the party <laughs> and the country. Um, if you were a betting man, who's your, you know, who's your money going to be on? And also what, who does the party need to run it right now? I mean, people tend to react against the next leader. So odds suggest that they'll want someone who can look very serious, you know, get on with business, that kind of thing. But there's a lot of strange forces in the Tory party at the moment. There's, there's a very strong Brexit fringe who sort of thinks... Boris got led astray by Carrie, was being too nice to the EU, was being sort of too uh, cuddly and environmental. So I think you'll sort of see two fairly right-wing candidates, even by the Tory sort of standards. Um, you know, I don't think you've got to see people who really soften and go one nation and institutions too much. But I think sort of from the serious, you know, serious knows what they're doing. Uh, ben Wallace, who polls very well, with Tory members, but I wonder how he'll do when he's off defence as an issue. Um, you know, I think he's riding a bit of a Ukraine boost there. Um, ben Wallace and Penny Borden from that kind of faction. Um, but then I think, you know, Liz Truss uh, has a more serious chance than people think. And Javid may, you know, may actually manage to do a reverse Heseltine and get a bit of a boost for being the one who actually had the nerve to sort of say enough is enough first. Um, you know, and I, I do think the Conservatives might like the idea of, as well as being the party that had the first female leader, be the first party to sort of have a leader of colour that becomes Prime Minister. You know, I think in an odd way that would appeal to them. Mm. Well, Boris Johnson, obviously, he won't be in the running, but he has always prided himself in Britain being the, you know, the first to do this and the out in front on X and out in front on Y. So, you know, maybe the rest of the party will echo that and want to be the first to, as you say, to do so. And of course, you know, there's, there's multiple potentially viable candidates of colour. You know, there's Pretty Patel, although she doesn't poll like she used to. People don't think she handled it well. But you've got Deem Zahawi, who might have, you know, maybe he's ruled himself out after a bad week. Um, and Syed Javid, you know, Zahawi supporters were texting around last night saying, you know, if he puts up with this Gove sacking, we'll back someone else. Now, whether his sort of tepid, not quite resigning, but shall, you know, saying that Johnson mm. should go settles them. Who knows? Who knows? I think the last time I looked before coming on this recording, Pretty Patel was at 40 to 1. I didn't see what um, Nadim Zahawi was at, but it'll be interesting to see whether 
sort of his actions in the last two days has played into his favour or whether he sort of shot himself in the foot or not? Yeah, I think it's quite hard sort of taking a job about 48 hours before, well, 24 hours before telling the new boss that he should quit. Mm. It's, uh, it's, it's an interesting, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure I'd recommend uh, any listeners try that. No, I don't. We haven't got to the advice segment of the podcast yet, but that one won't be. <laughs> <laughs> that one won't be on there. Um, you brought up, you know, Ben Wallace and Ukraine and, and defence. Obviously, you know, you wrote for us a few weeks ago that, you know, it has slipped down the news radar it's more ever more so in the last two days. But there is still a war going on in Ukraine. You sort of said to be wary of our sort of callous Ukraine fatigue in our news cycle. When Johnson won the vote, vote of confidence, it was remarked that it was a good day for Ukraine. So using that logic, this could be potentially bad news for Ukraine. Is there a danger that it's going to slip down the radar in the wake of all of this? Absolutely not. Um, I mean, there, there will be less UK attention because a leadership contest to the new prime minister is big and consuming and important. Mm-hmm. But Johnson had already committed an extra billion of spending to help arm Ukraine. Ben Wallace is still in post at the MOD and he has yeah. really sort of tied his, you know, tied himself to uh, to that issue uh, and, you know, seems to care very seriously about it. Uh, if Johnson's allowed to remain as caretaker, it's one of the few things that he can sort of do uncontroversially and continue to support. So, you know, I think Johnson will be trying to make Ukraine part of his legacy. Uh, you know, we might, some of us might think that's quite offensive or misplaced, but he'll be trying that. I don't, you know, I don't think this needs to be a bad day for Ukraine. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. You know, you said that Ukraine, whether it's, you know, looks bad or whatever, Johnson may try and make Ukraine part of his legacy. I think, you know, there's a running joke that if you poll voters in Ukraine, he does very well over there, funnily enough. Yeah. Um, well, Apparently, there are various WhatsApp groups sort of, you know, mourning his departure over there. So, really? So, yeah. Yeah. No, he is genuinely a very popular figure there. Um, you know, the UK has been a quite long standing ally and was one of the places that was sort of helping train and arm and give logistical support to Ukraine, you know, over the years before this second invasion. You know, Ukraine has, of course, been invaded by Russia since 2014. Mm. So, and we speak about his legacy. So the only other thing, you know, that pops into mind that he could try and ram home is, you know, the ongoing rhetoric that was always used about vaccines. And, you know, he got the big calls right and, you know, delivered the vaccine, which meant he could open up lockdown, whether that worked or not. And then the other one, as we've just discussed, is Ukraine. What, as he leaves, you know, as and when, what will the Johnsonian era be known as? What will the Johnson legacy be? Johnson will try and say, um, you know, he got Brexit done, he helped protect a free Ukraine, uh, and he managed COVID and got one of the world's best vaccination programmes out. The reality is, of course, he's left a horrible, unfinished mess behind on Brexit, uh, the worst cost of living crisis in 70 years, public services falling apart, the highest tax burden in, again, 70 years, the highest peacetime tax burden the UK has ever had, um, you know, and Ukraine, you, you know, the Ukraine invasion, you could say, is partly because of the cozy up to Russia for so long. There's quite, <laughs> there's there's two different ways that you can pay the, the legacy. What's interesting, though, is, you know, if you look at that list of uh, achievements, Brexit, COVID, and uh, Ukraine, almost none of those are things that 
you know, you need an 80-seat majority for. He hasn't managed to do a single transformative policy once he was in government. So essentially, it's not whatever he thinks. It's not going to be a good legacy moving forward. No, um, I don't think he'll. I don't think he's one of those that will be seen as more popular in history. Um, but you know, he'll be attached to Brexit forever, which for some people will be a point of praise, and for some will be the opposite. I think then on legacy, that's a fairly good point to um to end things for today. Although obviously they they are ongoing. Um, James Ball, thank you so much for joining the podcast. To read James's piece in issue two nine nine of the New European, visit theneweuropean.co.uk. Thanks, James, for joining the podcast as always. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to James Ball for joining us on the podcast this week. You can read more from James's column in issue 299 of The New European in Shops Today. And you can access all of James's articles online at theneweuropean.co.uk. And before the Hall of Shame, a reminder of something that isn't shameful. In fact, it's quite brilliant. Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives podcast tells the life stories of amazing Europeans in short 10-minute bursts. It's a superb listen. Two seasons are available now and can be found wherever you got this podcast. And now time for the Hall of Shame. It's the home of putrid pundits, malevolent ministers and people who just got my goat generally. First up, because we would hate to break tradition in our editor's absence, Alak, Igad, Harumph. It's Anne Widdicombe. She writes in her terrible column in the Terrible Daily Express that we should stop enabling the dangerously obese because there's no other dangerous enabling going on at the moment. She writes, I have a friend who is dangerously obese, and whenever she comes to stay, I make none too subtle attempts to keep meals healthy. She thinks me unkind, but the opposite is true. And with those comments, the masses heading to Anne Widdicombe's house for a joyful supper party promptly retreat. Steve Baker is in the Hall of Shame this week. While being interviewed on College Green this morning, he said that he believed... Most people in the country are basically Tories, even when they vote Labour. Right. He also added that what we need to do now is lift ourselves up and put smiles on our faces. Well, I imagine it will be a lot easier for some to do that today following the resignation news. It's not her first time, but Nadine Dorries is in the Hall of Shame this week. But not for her enduring love of Boris Johnson, nor her gaffe where she got two different codes of rugby mixed up which wouldn't seem so bad until you remember that we are talking about the cabinet minister responsible for sport. Note, she's in the Hall of Shame this week for tweeting her congratulations to Nadim Zahawe. She said, He arrived in the UK, a refugee who couldn't speak English, who knows nothing but to achieve against the odds. He will deliver for health in the same way he has delivered for vaccines and education. A top cabinet minister, congratulations, my friend essentially congratulating him for securing the position of health minister when in fact he became chancellor. She did promptly delete the tweet only to repost it with the word economy conveniently slotted in. Nadine's parody account also raised controversy this week after it tweeted, it feels like nobody wants to get up and work these days. In response to Conservative MP Nicola Richards' resignation, where Streeting called her out on this, to which she tweeted, Wake up, Wes. It's a reported parody account. He replied, sorry, Nadine, but it is sometimes hard to tell the difference. Well, quite. Finally, in the Hall of Shame this week is the man of the hour, Boris Johnson, because on this week of all weeks, it would be remiss not to. The man who got all the big calls right. 
to echo the concluding calls from PMQs yesterday. Bye, Boris. That was the New European Podcast. Thanks for listening. If you don't want to miss an episode of the New European Podcast, please subscribe. Oh, and give us nice reviews and lovely ratings. Please do listen to our other podcast, The 27. It's available in the New Europeans podcast channel. And don't forget Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives, another one available from the New European. If you like what we do and you want to help us keep doing it, please join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe. And a reminder of our special offer for new subscribers. If you go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash TNE podcast, you can join us for the great price of just £1 a week for digital or £2 a week for print and digital. That's theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash TNE podcast. You can join our Facebook readers group. You can follow us on Twitter at The New European. And you can follow me on Twitter if you like at elongman underscore brood. Until the next time we meet, so long snowflakes. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.